0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au Hey Red Door Church, it's Jimmy here. I am so excited to be back with you. I'm excited to be preaching this morning and in particular I'm excited because of this series. I don't think there is anything more important for us to be doing than to be thinking about and dwelling about God, especially in these uncertain times. A couple of nights ago I was reading one of the old sermons from Charles Spurgeon and he had a line that I think is a word in season for us as we jump into, as we delve into who God is. And I just wanted to read it out for you. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of God. Church, I want that for us this morning. I want us to be refreshed. I want us to be invigorated. And so I need us to delve into the subject of God. And that's what we've been doing these last couple of weeks, isn't it? We've been looking at different aspects of who God is and what his nature is like. We've looked at the fact that God is for us, that God is with us, that God is gentle. And today we're going to look at the fact that God is in control. Now we often use a whole bunch of different words to describe this reality. We might say that God is sovereign. We might say that God is ruling. We might say that God is reigning. But I think God being in control combines all these words into something that's really helpful. Because otherwise we actually miss something. You know, I, I, I hear a lot of Christians saying that God is sovereign, that God is ruling and reigning. But when we say that God is sovereign, often what we actually mean is that God is in control, that he is in control of his world, that he is organizing and orchestrating all things according to his plan. And that is true, It's just limited, because the word sovereign doesn't actually mean in control. It actually means ruling. We would say that Australia is a sovereign nation because it rules itself. But it doesn't actually mean that Australia is able to control everything that happens within its country. We we know that to be true, right? Australia is not controlling these hands. It's not controlling these dance moves. I don't think anybody wants to take responsibility for that. Not even me. And what we're actually talking about when we say that God is sovereign or that God is ruling or reigning or in charge, we're actually saying that God has rightful authority, that he's the rightful ruler of this universe, that he is king of the world, that he is in charge. And so we're going to open up the scriptures today and unpack what this looks like for us. And in fact, I think one of the most Beautiful depictions of this comes from Isaiah 46. In Isaiah 46, God is contrasting and comparing himself to the Babylonian gods and saying how they are wearisome, that they are placing burdens on the people. They are straight up weak source. And he says this, Remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. When we say that God is in charge, what we are saying is that there is no one else like Him. There is no one like our God in the universe. There is no one that approaches Him in His power, in His kindness, in His gentleness, in His wisdom, in His trustworthiness. There is no one like our God. He is alone. He is in a league of his own. And then God, he unpacks what is it that makes him so unique? What is it that sets him apart from everybody else? He says this, I declare the ends from the beginning. My plan will take place and I will do all my will. What sets God apart is not only that he is in a league of his own in power and gentleness and kindness and wisdom, is that he can accomplish every single one of his purposes. He has the authority, the rule and control to be able to fulfill all that he wants to take place. Arthur Pink, commenting on this, says it like this. Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass other than what God has eternally purposed. Here is a foundation of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or the devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. Not blind fate. Not unbridled evil, nor man, nor the devil, but God alone rules and he reigns. This is good news. God is in charge. And you might ask yourself the question, what does this actually look like for me, that God is in charge? And I want to unpack two different stories for us, that of Joseph and that of Jesus, that I think spectacularly unveil a God who is in charge. And if we look at the life of Joseph, we see this really, really clearly. It was stunning to me that Joseph has the most airtime of any person in the book of Genesis. You think of all the incredible stories that happen there of Adam and Eve, of Isaac, of of Jacob, of Noah. Joseph has more airtime, more chapters dedicated to him than anybody else. And I think it's to display that God is in control, that he is in charge. And if we're talking about God being in charge, we might want to race ahead to something like Genesis 50, verse 20. It says this, What you meant for evil, God intended for good. What others intended for evil, God intended for good. Even in the midst of trial, of opposition, God is securing his promise to Joseph and before him, Abraham. But I think if we rush ahead to this passage, what we actually do is treat Genesis like a little bit of a children's book. Over the last couple of months, I've been reading children's books to my son, Nate, and almost all of them end up like this. In the end, everything turned out okay all of the trauma, all of the chaos, all of the stuff that provided the strangeness, the craziness of the story, well, it all turned out okay. I think if we treat Genesis like this, though, we actually miss out on what God is doing in the middle of the story, what God is doing in the start of the story, and we miss out on God moving in power. I don't want us to miss out on that. Because I think it's absolutely incredible what God is doing. And so I'd encourage you to pick up your Bibles and turn to Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. We're going to read them out now. My old university lecturer used to say that if you want to understand the Old Testament, you need to know the covenant that God makes with Abraham. If we want to understand Joseph and God moving in power, we need to understand the covenants. And so in Genesis 12, it says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. And in Genesis 17, it says this. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and I will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout the generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to your future offspring... And to you I will give the land where you are residing all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession and I will be their God. Out of these covenants we actually start to see these four promises develop that help us understand and unpack what is going on not only in the Old Testament but in the life of Joseph. The first promise is that God will make Israel into a great nation. The second is that God will be with them, that he will be their God and they will be his people. There will be relationship. The third promise is that he will give them land as an inheritance, land to live in and to enjoy. And fourth is that God will make them a nation that blesses other nations around them. That they will bless not only themselves but others. That in fact it reaches ahead to Jesus saying that every single human on earth will be blessed through your family line. I don't know, though, if you've read the story of Joseph recently. It sort of feels like God is constantly almost failing at these promises. Joseph is his father's favorite son, yet out of jealousy, family division, violence happens. His brothers not only throw him down a well, but they send him and sell him into slavery. He's brought up by Potiphar, falsely accused and thrown into prison and abandoned and forgotten. Even when he is taken out of prison, there's a global famine that threatens not only him, but his entire family line. And you look through the promises that God made to Abraham and you think, well, no nation, no land, no blessing. In fact, I wonder whether he thought, where is God? You promised to be my God and I would be your people, but where are you? But what is God actually up to? Well, even in the midst of these trials, in the midst of this suffering, God is fulfilling his promises. Even through family division and violence, God is bringing unity to the line of Israel. Even through slavery, even through abandonment, even being thrown into prison, God is raising Joseph up to a position of authority in Egypt. From the position of authority, he blesses the nations around him. From the position of authority, God gives him land in Goshen to protect his people. And I start to wonder... That maybe God puts Joseph through all these things to remind us that God's promises are secure even in the middle of the impossible. That God is in charge regardless of what seems like is going on outside. God has not thrown down his authority. He has not thrown down his rule. He is still accomplishing all of his promises. And we see this not only in the life of Joseph, but in the life of Jesus, in what I think is one of the most astounding passages in all of Scripture. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 4 with me, I'm just going to read out a section that just blows my mind every time I hear it. It says this in Acts 4, 23 to 29. After they, being John and Peter, were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah." For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. This is astounding, and the context is that Peter and John have been brought before the religious leaders accused of preaching that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, and after they 've been interrogated, they head back to their people and they start to have a prayer meeting saying, "Hey, we need to thank God, we need to thank him for his love and his rule and his mercy and so we're just gonna, we're just going to get down we 're going to have a prayer meeting, and they start out by acknowledging him as master, as ruler as in charge, and then they Say something that I, I think my mind just still, just still has a little bit of trouble wrapping my head around. They say this line from David, and then they attribute it to the life of Jesus. They say, Why do the Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers assemble together against the Lord and his Messiah. But in fact, in this city... Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Don't skip over this. At the most wicked, the most vile, the most evil moment of human history, God is still securing his promises in the rejection In the beating, in the miscarriage of justice, in the torture, in the blasphemy on the Roman cross, God is still in charge. I've got to be honest with you, that's just not the way that sometimes my brain thinks about God being in charge. I want the safe version where God protects me from suffering as I walk in his sovereign will. But I think as I look at the life of Joseph and Jesus, I'm reminded that God's sovereignty, that his being in charge leads me to a better place, that even temporary defeats lead to eternal victories in the kingdom because God is ruling. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite passages. These light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. That's not to make light of our suffering. It's not to make light of trauma. It's not to make light of evil. It's just saying that even in the midst of it, God is good and he rules and he reigns and He is in control and he will make it good. I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly assuring, incre- incredibly uh, reassuring, especially at the moment in this crazy world where everything seems upside down and nothing is sure or stable. This year has been one of the most insane on records. It feels like the bushfires where uh, years ago, Kobe died. We've had COVID. I haven't seen you guys for three months now. And now we're, we're having riots and protests all across the world. And it, Everything just feels so uncertain. And to be honest, I just feel tossed to and fro sometimes. I feel like one of those wacky inflatable tube guys. When the wind changes, so do I. And if God isn't in charge, I think my sanity is at risk. I think i would lose my mind. And that's why I find it so assuring that he is in charge, that he is in control, that he is ruling and reigning, that he has rightful authority over this world. Charles Spurgeon says, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian rests their head. This is not just something to be understood and digested and believed. This is a reality to be practiced. God is in charge. And one of my great fears is that Christians make the mistake of believing in the authority of God and the sovereignty of God, of God being in charge, without ever practicing the reality of that. And I think that way lies madness. And so this year in particular, as I've been feeling tossed to and fro, what I've been doing is just reciting Isaiah 46 to myself in a prayer. God, there is no one like you. There's no one like you in our universe. In fact, I'm not like you. I need you. Make me dependent upon you. I need you. There's no one like you, God. God, you know the ends from the beginning. You know who doesn't? Me. And so as I worry and fret and have anxiety about all these things swirling around in our world, I know that you do not. I say, God, I throw myself upon you. I hand these things that are consuming my mind to you. You are in control. You are in charge. I am not. God, you, your purposes always stand. Your will will accomplish all that you set out to purpose. I know that mine won't. Bring my purposes, bring my desires in line with what you want. God, I need you. And as I hand over my anxieties and my fears to God, I find myself in the couch of rest. Resting in the knowledge that God is good, that he is sovereign, that he is ruling, that he is reigning, that God is in charge. It leads Lorraine Bettner to say this, Who would not prefer to have his or her affairs in the hands of a God of infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite holiness and infinite love, rather than to have them left to fate or chance or irrevocable natural law, or to our short-sighted and perverted selves? The answer is no one. No one wants that. Everyone would rather their fate be left in the hands of a good and holy and infinitely loving God. So what I want to do right now is to stop talking about God being in charge. And I want us to start practicing God being in charge. I'm going to set up a timer on the screen for about five minutes. And here's what I want us to do. One. I want us to read Isaiah 46. I want us to sit in it, dwell in it, meditate upon it. You know, you can memorize it, maybe not in these five minutes, but you know, later on. I want you to understand what it is that God is unique. There is no one like him. Secondly, I want us to grab a pen or a piece of paper. Just write down, what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to so tightly that God actually has authority over? And then I want us three to just, just pray a responsive prayer. You can pray it similar to how I've set it out. God, there's no one like you. I'm not like you. I hand this over to you. But I just want you to hand over those things to God that you've listed on that piece of paper, recognizing and remembering that he is in charge, that he has authority, that he has power. When we come back, I'm going to pray over us. Um, But I, I just think five minutes spent practicing God being in charge will be incredibly beneficial for us. So go. I'll see you in five minutes. Friends, I hope that was helpful. I hope that as you've thrown yourself on God, that you've experienced rest and peace and assurance because that's what happens to me when I do that. To finish today, I just want to pray a prayer over us. So if you'd like to bow your heads, I'm going to read a prayer from the book of uh, The Valley of the Vision. I think will be encouraging for us. Most high God, the universe with all its creatures are yours made by your word, upheld by your power, and governed by your will. You are the Father of mercies, the God of all graces. You are the bestower of all comfort and the protector of those you love. You have been mindful of us and visited us, preserved us, and given us a good heritage. Make us willing That you should choose our inheritance, determine what we shall retain or lose, suffer or enjoy. If we are blessed with prosperity, may we be free from its snares and use but not abuse its advantages. May we patiently and cheerfully submit to any afflictions which are necessary. Assure us that we shall at last enter Emmanuel's land where none is sick and the sun will always shine upon us.